coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 19th of March, 2023. Prepared for holiness. When I was growing up, way back beyond the days of yesteryear, we sang Amazing Grace. And I just didn't get it. I mean, you think about a teenage kid sitting in church singing the first line of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. No teenage kid thinks that. They might not have a good self-image, but they don't think, I'm a wretch. They don't introduce themselves that way. They don't see themselves that way. So when I sang that song, I go, what? It wasn't until later that I realized that what the psalmist was saying in that song was true. It's just I had a hard time coming to grips with it. He wasn't speaking something that was false. He was speaking to something that I was willing to deny. When we think about sin, we have a tendency to think in terms of stealing, murder, those kind of things. But we don't often think of that first commandment when it says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Nothing should come between me and my God, and God is God and I'm not, is basically what that first one is about. Well, if you start looking at that first commandment, then you start seeing the wisdom of the statement, even in that hymn, that saved the wretch like me. Why? Because I'm very much inclined to do my own thing, not recognize God as God, but take that upon myself. I'm going to decide how my life ought to be lived. And when I realized that the very essence of sin then was the exclusion of God from my life and taking on that role myself, that the psalmist song made a lot more sense. We're going to look at a passage that Apostle Paul speaks to the church at Colossae concerning these very things. And it's just a few short verses, which means you should be out by one. So, if you turn in your Bible to Colossians, the first chapter, let's examine verses 21 through 23. Depending on what translation you have, this is a, a few sentences long, or this is one long run-on sentence. Let me read it for you. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by death, by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, and indeed, if indeed you continue in the, tr 
in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So that's either a couple sentences or one big long run-on sentence, depending on which translation you have and how they crafted it. But we want to draw some principles out of this, this short little passage. And the first one speaks to my problem with um, seeing myself as God saw me apart from him. Paul puts it this way when he's writing to the church at Colossae, and just by way of reminder, as he's writing to this church, he's, he hasn't visited them. He only has gotten word back from Epaphras what kind of church family this was. And he's already commended them. He's already prayed over them. And now he's describing what's true of every believer. He says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So the first description of the church there says, let's think about how we all started out. And our first principle that we're going to develop is every true believer realizes their former deplorable state. Okay? Every true believer realizes their former deplorable state. And as time goes on, you get to ponder that more and more. And you go, man, as we think of the nuances of how sin finds its way into our life, we go, God, you weren't off the mark at all. You were right on the mark. He uses three uh, terms to describe this deplorable state. The first one is alienated. It says, who were once alienated, and that's the idea of being foreign. We were foreign to the Lord. We we're foreign to the ways of God. I don't know if you've had a chance to travel to another country, but other countries do things differently than we do. And when they come to our country, we do different things than they do. And the picture here is the ways of God to us when we were unbelievers was just totally foreign. We couldn't make any sense of it. The natural man receives not the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. If you don't have the spiritual discernment, you don't figure out what in the world is God trying to do anyway. Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must not walk, no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their mind, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. And so we're told a lot about what it means to be alienated. We have hard hearts towards God. We don't want to listen to what he has to say. Our understanding is darkened. What does it mean? Doesn't we have full understanding? We don't have full insight. 
into why things are the way they are, and we're leaving God out of the equation. Have you ever tried to solve a math problem with an element that's missing? Well, you go, well, that sounds like algebra to me. But what he's talking about is, no, you're not given all the information. You don't have all the information. How are you going to solve this problem? You're not. He says, they have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so, as Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4, this idea of being foreign to the ways of God means that we're so out of sync with God because we don't get what he's thinking about and what he's about. He's about holiness and I'm about my thing. He says all of us started out that way. All of us, not one. So every true believer realizes their former deplorable state. He's not done yet though. And he says that we were not only alienated, we were hostile in mind. Not only were the ways of God foreign to us, but we were actually in opposition to him. I don't want you to have any say in my life, God. Now we may do that in a, uh, a casual way of just saying, I'm going to ignore that there is a God, or I may not even acknowledge that there is a God, or we may be adamant in our, in our response to God, you're not going to have a say in my life. All those things are true when it comes to being hostile in mind. We're, we're then enemies of God, as it describes in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. If for a while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now being reconciled, we have saved by his life. But we were enemies. Apostle Paul says, if we're going to, every true believer is going to understand where we came from. What our condition was apart from Jesus Christ. And then he gives one third, one, uh, the third element. He says, and it translated into doing evil deeds. We would do those things that demonstrated that God wasn't a part of our equation that God wasn't a part of our life. It was foreign to us. We were enemies of him, and we demonstrated that by our lives. We just lived our life uh, apart from the things of God. You know, that's true of somebody who's religious, too. Not just someone who's secular out in the world had nothing to do with God is a person who doesn't understand the ways of God is alienated from the ways of God. They might be involved in some religion that professes to know God, but if they don't know him and he isn't a part of their life, these same things are true. And they're going about living their life not in harmony with God, but as in opposition to God, we are enemies of God. So he gives us those three descriptive uh, lines. And he says now in verse 22, 
and he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If you read this second verse, you see something that, that Paul has done here. He has mentioned at first, there was three things that described our former deplorable state. And now he's talking about being reconciled to God. And he talks about some characteristics here too. So our second principle that we're going to underscore is every true believer not only realizes their former deplorable state, but every true believer is purposely united with God through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And you go, well, why didn't you just say we're united to, to God through Christ? Because the text makes a point of this when it says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Reconciled through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. I want you to notice something. If you're looking at your text, look at verse 20, which was in last week's message. And he says, through him, talking about Jesus Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And now here it says it's the body of his flesh we are reconciled. And we have the picture of the Lord's table there. His body broken for us, his blood spilled for us. He says we are reconciled through the sacrifice on the cross. And you say, why in the world would he bring this up? He couldn't just kept the sentence much smoother, easier, just said, Jesus Christ died for us, and we're reconciled. It's because in the time in which this was written, there was a big emphasis on saying what is really spiritual is the immaterial nature of our walk with God. In other words, there are some who would have said, Jesus Christ didn't really come in the flesh. When he came, it was as a spirit to manifest. And some would go so far even today as to say, you know, the fact that Jesus Christ came, lived among men, performed miracles, went to the cross, is not really the point. It says it was written for us to understand that God cared for us and that God wanted us to live a better life. And the whole aspect of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh and then his flesh being crucified and his blood being spilled is beside the point. Apostle Paul goes, no, that is the point. Jesus Christ physically died so that where our sins would be paid for on the cross, the wages of sin is death. If Jesus Christ was just some sort of spirit, he didn't really die. We would still be in our sin, according to God's word. 
So every true believer is purposely united with God through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We have the word reconciliation then. The idea is to pull back together, that we are pulled back together to God. When were we separated? Back in the garden, the wages. Uh, when Jesus, when God confronted Adam and Eve, he says, you know, you're going to surely die. And what God wants to do now is to reconcile mankind by faith through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross so that we could be restored in our relationship to the living God. But he goes on in this verse, and he says, has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. And we see three more things. Before he gave us three pictures of what it meant when we were alienated from him, now he talks about reconciled and what it means to be reconciled. And we come to the third principle. Every true believer was purposefully united with God to be presented to the Father in holiness. How can an unholy person be right with a holy God? It had to be through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ entered into by faith where we could be reconciled to God and brought into the position of being holy before God, not through our efforts, not through our labors, but through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we take the first three principles. He says, we were alienated, we were hostile in mind, we were doing evil deeds, and now God designed for us is that we be holy and blameless and above reproach. Wow. Wow. So let's look at these three concepts, what it means. First of all, he mentions being holy. We know what holiness means. It means to be set apart. Before we were alienated from God, we were separated from him. Now we're, we're, we're made holy and we're in alignment with him, who he is, his character, his nature. That's God's intention that we would be, are you ready for this? It's a Pastor Tim word, holified. Okay? That we would be set apart to God. That we would be like his character, like his nature. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before, the, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all saints. So the next two words sound a lot like holy, but they have a little bit of nuance. The words are blameless and above reproach. The word blameless has as its core meaning, something without defect. And you go, well, obviously Apostle Paul wasn't writing about me because I got plenty of defects. No, this is in God's eyes that we would be holy in his sight. Why? Because he's seeing us in light 
of Jesus Christ. This is our position in, in the presence of God. One day, our, our physical bodies will be taken up and we will be with him and we will actually know that in harmony with how we are seen right now. But our position and our condition are different here. But he says, you're in process here on earth. In God's eyes, you're blameless, but also he is working in us to make that true of us. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 1, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of God, God of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. And we see exactly the connotation then that just as a Jew was to pick from his flock of animals a sacrificial lamb and to set it aside for a week and to examine that lamb and make sure that it had no issues. And then when they would bring it before the priest, the priest would inspect it and say, ah, there, there is no fault with this lamb. Didn't mean the lamb was absolutely perfect. What it means is there was no blemishes there. Then it could be sacrificed as a good representation of Jesus Christ. And he says, that's what God is at work doing in every life of every believer. We are blameless. And then he uses one third one. He says, and above reproach. Above reproach. And you go, Paul, I don't know, have you ever hung out with people before? You know what you're talking about. Is every person I've run into has some sort of issue in their life. He says, what this idea encapsulates is there is no grounds for charges against the believer. Why? If we would be accused by Satan before the Lord, our appeal is that that sin has already been taken care of on the cross by Jesus Christ. And we are blameless then. Does that mean we never sin? No, it means our sin has already been dealt with. We confess and repent so that our fellowship is good with the, with the Lord, but our position is already good because of the work of Jesus Christ. So then we come to verse 23 and everything is blown to bits because he says, if indeed you continue in the faith and you go, oh no, there's the problem. See, I'm going to be able to continue in the faith. I, you know, I may just fall away or I may lose my salvation or, or wow, I'm in trouble here. If we were doing okay, if, if my salvation was dependent upon, on Jesus Christ, 
But if it's going to depend on me, because he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, he says, how can I know that my salvation will be secure if there's a possibility of falling away or having some issue that will lead to some failure on my part and not having any sin whatsoever. So we come to the last point, and I'll explain that if clause, because, are you ready for this? It's glorious. Are you ready? Every true believer will steadfastly persevere in hope. Every true believer will persevere steadfastly persevere in hope. And this is one of those little gems that doesn't show up in our English Bibles, but it's clear in the language in which the Bible was written. The word if, there's two Greek words for if, and there's two conditions, first condition, second condition, and how it's used. First condition is this word if with the present tense, which means this thing is ongoing. The second condition is a different word, if, and is attached to the subjunctive. And you go, oh, I remember my English studies. I know what the subjunctive case is. No, you don't. I didn't. Anyway, subjunctive means it may happen. Okay? And that's how we understand this verse normally. If I continue uh, in faith with the possibility of it not happening, because it's subjuncting, it may happen, it may not happen. I may continue in faith or I may not continue in faith. And with that understanding, everything is in jeopardy. But that's not what's used here in this passage. Apostle Paul used the first condition with the present tense, and this is the force of it. You're going to love it. He says, if you continue in faith, which we expect that you will, it's not a question of, well, I may fail or I may not fail. That's not the force of this. The force of this is because you have been made holy and blameless and above reproach, that that's going to continue on in your life. And as you continue on in your life, you're going to see these things come to pass in your life. What is it? You will continue in faith, stable and steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel of which you've heard. The expectation, as Apostle Paul lays it out, and he's writing to again to the church at Colossae, he says, I've heard your faith and I know what it's like. And these things are true of you. And this is how it's going to play out in your life. You are going to remain steadfast. You're going to be stable. You're going to be steady. You're, these things are going to be true of you. Why? Because it's God who's at work doing his pleasure in your life. 
See, so the question of if here isn't in the sense of you might be able to sustain this or might not be able to sustain this. He's saying, no, God is going to sustain this in you. It's a given that that will happen. So there was a big question going on in the Colossae church. And that was, what role does works have in the life of a believer? And to tell you the truth, it's a question that comes up over and over again in our day too. What role does works have? And the idea in the false teachers was, you'll be saved based on God's sacrifice on the cross and your faithful works. What's the problem with that? There's a weak link in this. <laughs> it's not over what Jesus Christ did. It's what I may or may not do. And the false teachers were saying, yeah, you've got to live a holy life. You've got to do these things in order to be what? Righteous before God. And he goes, uh-uh. No, 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 no. And so that's why the express statement here, when it talks about Jesus Christ's body of flesh, was was taken by death in order to present you this way. And then the expected results of that transforming work of God in your life is that you're going to live this holy life. It's not the expectation of one, oh boy, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Does that mean we do it perfectly all the time? No. No, but that's a call on our life. He says, these things, if you continue in faith, the idea of persistence, being persistent. Peter put it this way in his little epistle, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. I don't, if you've got your notes, I would, I would circle that verse and come back to it and read it again. Why? He says, this is God's work in you, taking you from the point of salvation right on into his presence. And he's the one that's at work in you. This isn't something that you have to do. He's at work in you. Then he uses the word. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable. And the picture here is, do you have a firm foundation for your faith? And all you have to do is go to the other epistles of Paul and you go, yes, we're built upon Christ who is the cornerstone and the foundations of the teachings of the apostles. It says we have a sure foundation. And then he says steadfast. And steadfast points to another element that we all will face in our life at one time or another. He's talked about Continuing in faith, being persistent. Talks about being stable because we have a firm foundation. And this word steadfast then 
points to another aspect of our Christian living, and that is what happens in the life of a believer when trials come. What happens when trials come? What happens when we're tested? Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, we have a resource, Jesus Christ himself, who is in the process of working in our lives, even in the toughest of times, to prepare us for presence with God for all eternity. Then he says, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The gospel is good news. The gospel is at the point of, of salvation. The gospel is good news through our sanctification as we live this life. And the gospel is good news because it takes us right into glory and we're glorified in, in his presence. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's a God at work in our hearts and lives. Then you say, well, what about those people who profess to be believers, but they don't live this? You're not going to like what I'm about to say. Apostle Paul said they went out from us because they were not of us. God is going to be faithful and work in the life of true believers to persistently take them to the place where they're prepared to enter into the presence of God. And you're going to say, well, is that always true? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Apostle Paul is talking about the Lord's table and he says something that is at once convicting and the other encouraging. In verse 29 of chapter 11, he says, if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, he eats and drinks judgment to himself. And he's talking about believers here. And he says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. What is he saying? That you are lost for eternity? No, he says, if you are disobedient, God says, I'm going to bring you home. We're done. It doesn't mean he's abandoned you. You've lost your salvation or anything like that. What he says is you have sinned. Some of you are sick because of that. And some of you have died because of that. He says, if you're not going to be following me, if you're not going to be developing and prepping in the way to heaven and serving me, I can just take you home. I can take you home. 
be real clear here, not everybody who has died has sinned, and that's why God took them all. Just be careful in your application. And then finally, Paul says in the end of this passage, you want an example of how all this is true? He says, just look at me. Just look at me. And he goes back and he reminds us what kind of life that Paul had. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was alienated from the things of God. He was hostile and he was an enemy of the things of God. He was all those things that he has described in this text. And he says, and here I am now, by the grace of God, I'm ministering the gospel on his behalf. How great is our God that would take us from being alienated and enemies of God to using us and allowing us to be ministered to minister on his behalf. So you can see in these three short verses, as Paul is writing to the church of Colossae, sort of a summary of the Christian life as he takes us from the point of being enemies against God to the place of full service and delivered into the presence of a holy God, having been prepared for it. May our hearts be encouraged because those that were false teachers in the Colossae church says, oh no, it doesn't work that way. And Jesus Christ really isn't that important. Apostle Paul goes, oh yeah. And then he says, and, and if Jesus Christ has some importance, it's not totally satisfying, uh, satisfactory. You've got to add more to it in the way that you live a holy life. Apostle Paul goes, oh no, that's not true either. And so in this little section of three verses, he gives some pretty deep instruction in our understanding of, of what our Christian life is about and what true believers are about. Every true believer realizes their former deplorable state. Every true believer is purposely united with God through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Every true believer is purposely united with God to be presented to the Father in holiness. And every true believer will steadfastly preserve, persevere in hope. That's our heritage. Praise God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this writing Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae and by application to us. We understand what you have in store for us. We could see your plan while we were still enemies of, a, of you. You came for the purpose of reconciling us to you. And Heavenly Father, preparing us to enter into your presence one day, holy and, and prepared, sanctified, and walking in righteousness. We give thanks that you have not left us in our sin, and when we were saved, you haven't 
Uh, just let us go out on our own, but you're leading and guiding us and you're drawing us into your presence day by day. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.